0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Turning a New Leaf, where we discuss the changing face of Canada as it prepares to legalize and regulate recreational cannabis across the country. Turning a New Leaf is produced by the Village Soundcast Network, and I'm your host, Sean King. Enjoy. So today we're welcoming Mary Jane Gibson to the show and I added her last name on purpose because the first name is Mary Jane and yes of course we'll talk about that later. Mary Jane is a writer, editor, producer and culture recent culture editor at High Times magazine in Los Angeles. Uh, Mary Jane like me grew up and spent some time in Newfoundland. She wrote and edited for High Times for over a decade, most recently most recently sorry as I just mentioned as culture editor which we'll get her to explain. She was named one of the 15 Most Powerful Women in the Weed Industry by Complex. She's now consulting for cannabis companies and writing freelance for a number of outlets, including The Fresh Toast and Dope. I don't know any of these, so maybe, Mary, you can talk to me about those. Currently living in Los Angeles, she writes about cannabis culture, entertainment, and cutting-edge trends, and is also an accomplished actor, most recently appearing in the Barker Room Reps' 2017 production of A Map of Virtue. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mary, you've been... Uh, so when I looked up... Uh, information on you 11 years in New York City as a copy uh, lifestyle and entertainment editor for the magazine and now two years uh in LA as culture editor so that's right that's quite a journey from uh from Newfoundland
1: how did you get there (laughs) how did I get here from there I don't even know um It's been a wild ride. I left Newfoundland to go to uh, theater school in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated from school, uh, I then spent a few years kicking around uh, Ireland and the UK, and then was sort of wondering where to land after that. And my sister at the time lived in Seattle, Mm So I moved to the, to the States then, um, and started working in Seattle as an actor. And then that journey took me to New York where I was uh, working in theater. And, you know, of course, when you're an actor, you have to have a million jobs, um, (laughs) (laughs) to support your habit, my, my acting habit. And so, um, I was good friends with the manager of High Times, ma- managing editor, sorry, of yeah. High Times Magazine at the time, um, Natasha Lewin, and she asked me if I needed some uh, copy editing work. And that's where my journey with High Times that's began. How it started. So that was, yeah, that was 2007. I was working mostly as an actor and uh, started picking up more and more copy editing. And then I started writing. And then uh, in 2014, Uh, They offered me a full-time editorial position as lifestyle editor, which started my um, whole tenure as an editor at the magazine, which just recently ended. And my last title that I held was culture editor.
0: Wow. So what is a culture editor?
1: Uh, Writing about cannabis culture, lifestyle, fashion, entertainment, fitness, basically anything that's not specifically um, cultivation related. Right, right. Uh, all, All the fun stuff.
0: Yeah, so High Times magazine to me would be like like the Rolling Stone in the music, you know, Rolling Stone magazine in the music industry. How would you describe the magazine for anyone that might not be familiar with it?
1: Well, High Times was founded in 1974, so it's been around for 44 years. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's as old as most of us. Yeah, uh, o- older than some of us who are listening to this, I'm sure. <laughs> And uh, it definitely is. It's one of the heavy hitters. It's the sort of, you know, you can refer to it as the rolling stone of the cannabis industry or the like the playboy of the of the weed world. Mm. Um, it was founded by a man named Thomas King Forsad, who at the time was smuggling uh, bales of marijuana in like small engine prop planes. And he was just a, a wild sort of um Anti-establishmentarian political activist. He was involved with a group called the Yippies, where they used to go to like the Republican National Convention and throw pies in people's faces. He was very, <laughs> like, stick it to the man. Yeah. And he founded High Times as, as a, in, in that sort of spirit, in that like uh, political, you know, thumbing his nose at the establishment spirit. And I don't think he ever expected that it would be as successful as it was. But the first issue sold out, and then the next issue sold out, and it grew and grew and grew. And wow. Uh, And that's been it for 44 years now. That's crazy.
0: Wild. And how does, like, it never dawned on me till just now, but how does a magazine become so commercially successful in an industry that is illegal or was illegal?
1: Right. So so it's been an interesting battle for High Times as uh, it was a small family-owned company until fairly recently. Uh, Tom Forsad um, committed suicide in 1978. And so his family with a trust of um, lawyers took over the business and they ran it through, uh, you know, the crazy years of the 80s and FBI investigations and, you know, the war on drugs and all this sort of stuff. And it was always because it was a cannabis media publication. You know, High Times wasn't offering anything for sale. It was just covering a movement. And then it really grew into, in the 90s, like the Home Grow Bible. Um, It started really educating people on how to grow. Um, And of course, because it was offering advice on how to do things that were uh, illegal under federal law in the United States, a lot of the um, staff wrote under pen names. Oh, wow. You know just had to be careful and it, it you know but they persevered and of course now cannabis is one of the biggest industries in the world and you know we were on the right side of history the whole time i suppose is, is what the high times folks would say and um here we are the right side of history that's a that's
0: a neat phrase
1: yeah
0: <laughs> gonna, yeah think about that one so um I'm a bit stumped at the moment because I'm just thinking about all this cool stuff about this magazine that I hadn't even considered that the writers who would have been fearful of getting busted for whatever reason. But I was there all kinds of I'm only imagining that there must have been all kinds of trouble related to the law in that magazine.
1: Well, for sure. I mean, you know, my my time at High Times was uh, only over the last 10 years, but certainly through the 80s and 90s, I've heard the stories of writers, you know, really risking their uh i mean honestly they like their safety and security to go and cover uh grows to travel to places where they were perhaps covering something that you know might, might be dangerous like some of the jamaican grows or uh the you know the hash scene in morocco um you know writers who were really dedicated to the cause of you know uh cannabis and and the freeing the plant and uh you know all the wonderful things that we can experience now in this new era of cannabis legalization they they really put their their lives on the line, and they had to be very careful, especially you know if they had families. Um, yeah, you know, they do, like it's you know it's been a big issue of uh, you know throughout like the idea that they might lose custody of a child if they were found to be doing something illegal. So, yeah, it's been an interesting ride with a lot of uh, pioneers, and they're um, I think now it's time to recognize them.
0: I mean, is there not yet a movie about this magazine?
1: I believe that High Times, so I'm no longer with High Times, um, yeah. but the company was taken over uh, by a, a larger group last year. And I think they have huge plans to make all sorts of yeah. stuff happen, movies and TV shows. And I know they're expanding the events arm of the brand and they're having cannabis cups all over the place. So I think there's a lot they have a lot in the works.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. and And. And now how it almost the impression I get that that back then there would be a certain cachet. I mean, there still is, I think, within the culture uh, for anyone that maybe have worked or written for the magazine. But back then, there must have been a certain cachet to being a part of that magazine. I can't imagine why anyone would risk their that anything, frankly, to to be a a writer for that magazine. I mean, I don't imagine there was danger pay in any sense or was there. (laughs)
1: No, no, I don't think there was danger pay. I think the fundamental uh, thing that you know everyone who worked for the magazine really had to believe in was that they they believed in cannabis, you know, yeah. as as a, a a plant and as a as a sort of an idea to, um, like you know, the sort of it, for a very long time was a countercultural magazine, yeah, you know. So they were exploring all of the aspects of. You know, what it means to expand your consciousness, uh, what it means that, you know, the war on how the war on drug drugs exists and why it was created, which was to suppress. Uh, you know, mostly people of color and people who were questioning the government's activities and right. uh, here in the U.S. and, you know, the 70s and 80s, especially. And uh, so it was really a dedication to the fundamental concepts of freedom, freedom, not only to consume cannabis, but freedom also to express yourself and to question authority, you know, yeah, and if yeah, you believe right. in that, then you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll endanger. You'll do your, anything. Your, Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what about now that it's legal? And we'll get back to the whole point of why we're discussing it in a second. But I mean, I can imagine from a business perspective that the legalization will do all kinds of things for maybe the way the magazine can branch out into other activities, as you just mentioned. But mm-hmm. is there any risk, do you think, of the cachet of the magazine being um, diminished by legalization?
1: No, I don't think so because it's a sort of you know uh, I think the the term is legacy brand you know so it's something yeah. that has existed for so long and means so much already that anyone who has heard of high times already has an association with it that means it stands for these certain things these concepts of you know liberty and freedom of expression and yeah. freedom to consume and all that sort of stuff and now. That this whole new world is sort of opening up, although of course it is still federally illegal under the Schedule One laws in the United States. So we're we're not there yet. There's still a fight to be had, but um, there are many more opportunities for the company to yeah expand in this sort of event space and all that sort of thing and become uh, um, you know like the standard bearer. I suppose is now what they want to be.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm going to dwell on the magazine for just a little bit longer before we turn this into a conversation about what's going on here in Canada. Um, sure. But you had mentioned cannabis cups, and and the reason I wanted to, to, to bring this up was because to anyone listening who is unfamiliar with the culture um, as it relates to the magazine, that may seem insane um, that there are competitions and awards given out. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: I can. Um, I'm judging one right now, in fact. Um, (laughs) I don't know what it means to judge one of those right now, but (laughs) that's interesting. Well, so the Cannabis Cup was founded in... Oh, gosh, I think it was 1987 by a guy who was the editor of High Times at the time. His name was Stephen Hager. Mm-hmm. And his idea was just to sort of create like a harvest festival, you know, like you have for anything that comes in out of the harvest. You know, you bring it to market and everyone says which one's best and which pumpkin is biggest yeah. and all that sort of thing. It's <laughs> funny. I went to pumpkins, too. I was thinking pumpkins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's the same idea, but with cannabis. Yeah. Um, he invited several, uh, you know, friends and cannabis connoisseurs or canisseurs, as I like to call them, mm. um, to Amsterdam in the 80s, which is, you know, really where the scene had cropped up after the war on drugs had really pushed everyone out of uh, the U.S. And uh, they got together and they smoked a bunch of really great uh, cannabis for a week. And then they, you know, chose the best, their favorites. And it was just really like a group of friends and I think a pretty relaxed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Event, but that grew and grew and grew in Amsterdam, uh, to become an uh, like a annual uh, week long event that would happen where you go on coffee shop crawls and different coffee shops would feature strains that were entered into the cup and you would have the opportunity to, to smoke them. And then cast your own vote. And then they had this special sort of expert panel of judges who would come in and it was really just their job to sit around and just like a wine tasting, you know, really discuss all of the different aspects of the bud and not just smoke it and get high, but really look at it and discover, you know, what the taste of each strain is, what the aroma is, what the what they call bag appeal is, what the burnability of it is. Was it well flushed? Does it have um, You know the proper nutrients and all that sort of thing and then also of course how it makes you feel they take a week they decide and at the end of that they would award the cannabis cup to the best strains and now as the cannabis cup exists in the u.s and in many different places they have tons of categories there are um i think 13 categories now at cannabis cups that are happening in california and now what the event looks like is uh it's usually a two or three day festival And it's a true festival with an expo where there are uh, booths with vendors who are showing Um, off their wares. There's music, there are seminars, there are, you know, live grow room demonstrations. There's a topicals spa where you can go and get a massage with some cannabis infused topicals. And it's really, I mean, it's pretty incredible. If you've never <laughs> been to one, I highly recommend checking it out. I,
0: I'm listening and, to you and I'm i am am laughing and I'm shaking my head and we're looking at each other here in the booth going, that is crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, it's it, pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And yet, and here we are. Uh, talking about all of the risk management and legal issues and potential societal changes that might be impacted by legalization in Canada. Yet, you know, that this whole thing is happening in another world, it seems like. So let's get to that. Um, Okay. uh, Now, this is kind of interesting because marijuana was just legalized in California this year.
1: Correct. Yes. As of January first, it's adult use consumption. It's been uh, medicinal, sorry, medicinally available here through Prop two fifteen since nineteen ninety six, I believe, or oh, ninety five. Yeah. 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 So California was really at the at the forefront of that fight here in the U S. But now it's adult use, meaning anyone twenty one and older can walk into a shop and buy it legally.
0: Yeah. So what's happened? How has that been going?
1: I think. Like any uh, state that has regulated adult use consumption, uh, there there are some growing pains, you know, I know in Colorado and in Washington, it really took them a few years after they uh, legalized recreational adult use in 2012. I think it really took them two or three years to sort of figure it out, like the, you know, all the regulation and the taxation and the you know, just giving permits and licensing to all of the people who are clamoring to be able to produce and manufacture and sell yeah. cannabis legally. You know, there are a lot of people who all of a sudden wanted to sort of jump on the bandwagon. It. And so they're trying to be very careful about it here in Los Angeles. They actually only started with um, four, I believe, shops um, for the whole city. For the whole city. And it's a huge city. Yeah, um, I've heard and- of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and a lot of people who wanted to buy it. So, there were lines out the door at these four places that were the oh, really? um, spaces that were uh, able to sell. So, it's been interesting. It's been a very slow, uh, careful process. They've appointed a cannabis czar here uh, named Kat Packer, who's a fascinating uh, woman who is uh, sort of heading up the whole she's i guess you know responsible for overseeing the entire legalization initiative and implementing it you know carefully and making sure that they do it right and it's just it's taking some time to wow. figure it out i know there are some companies that i'm working with who still even though they have been in business for quite some time here in california they still have not received their permits to manufacture thc products legally under the new um adult use laws. So they have completely stopped manufacturing for now and they're just waiting to see. So it's, it's taking some time. Yeah. They're working through some red tape.
0: Yeah. And, and what about from a cultural perspective? I mean, I, you know, this is the kind of the point of what we're doing here is to talk about all the different perspectives that might need to be considered as, as, as the country considers, you know, provincial, national, like federal regulation. And, um, right. you know, we talk a lot about things like, you know, is use going to skyrocket? Is it going to be, you know, um, uh, traffic trouble with people who are smoking and driving? Um, I, I don't know if anybody really knows what to expect. There's all kinds of theories, but are are you yeah. noticing anything
1: there in, in that sense? Well, just statistically, I know, you know, a lot of those thoughts about, uh, impaired driving going up or, um. Use rates going up are sort of like fear based uh, paranoid you know, they're just sort of paranoid thoughts because there is actually some data that has come in from states like Colorado and Washington, where uh, use amongst teens actually has dropped um, oh, that's that's statistically interesting. proven. Yes. Yeah, so I believe uh, impaired driving. Rates have not gone up significantly, and the amount that they have gone up can actually be attributed to the fact that they're now just looking for people who are driving. Yeah, right. And after having you know consumed, so it's not that more people are doing it; it's just they're they're sort of like looking a little harder for reasons to yeah. come down on it. And I really think that anyone who's a responsible cannabis user, just like anyone who's a responsible, you know, consumer of any any substance that's going to impair you, you know, if it's prescription drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, the people who are responsible are always going to be responsible. And the people who are irresponsible, you know, if they get caught and stopped, then that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned the teen use has dropped
0: again, this is another one of those things that depending on what information you choose to read or believe, uh, you get all kinds of different, different reports on that. I mean, we've been hearing mm-hmm. they've dropped, we've been hearing it's gone up. Um, right. what, what do you think, uh, is, well, first of all, do you think that that's true? And, and if it is, what's your, what would your theory be on why that's happening?
1: My, um, impression is that, uh, the agencies that are trying to find increased usage are having a very difficult time finding any data to support that. Oh, really? Very, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that we are experiencing a shift where people are, you know, turning to cannabis as an alternative to alcohol.
0: Yeah, right, right. We, we, we actually have talked about that a little bit here too, that that, that may be um, – that may be a trend that we see, but again, we don't we don't know.
1: Right. Um, I think that you know, it, it, in my in my opinion, I think that if people are turning to cannabis as an alternative to alcohol, then of course, you know, they may see some increased rates in cannabis use. But you know, if you look at that as uh, um, you know, cannabis as an alternative to alcohol, it has been proven that it is you know obviously healthier. I think, you know, it's not responsible for any deaths and, um, you know, the effects of it on the body are, although I think it is important to acknowledge that cannabis is a substance that can have, you know, uh, effects on you. Like, you know, some people just like to refer to it as a, a plant that, you know, is, doesn't have any, that uh, you, you don't need to be careful with it. I think you do. Um, yeah. and there isn't enough clinical data out there to really prove, uh, you know, certainly on, on developing young minds and all that sort of thing, that you, know, you should absolutely be careful with it. But I uh, culturally, I just believe that it is a great thing to have it available to folks who might want to use it as an alternative to other substances, mm-hmm. and that if the rate of cannabis consumption does increase because of that, then that's not a bad thing.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, it's funny. Well, I'll get to it at the end, but it, usually we kind of, I try to wrap this up with the idea of what you personally think, but, but we'll come back to that. Um, this this is also very timely from another perspective, and and it's just sort of weird the way this stuff seems to happen. But you just finished writing a story for High Times magazine. In fact, it's coming out in the May issue, right? The um, and the article is is called "Oh Canada," and that sounds fine, except when you see the spelling, it's C A N N A D A. Uh huh. Pretty clever. Um, Thanks. <laughs> But the focus was on how legal marijuana may affect Canada's culture and Canada's economy. And so I've I've read the article. We're gonna I would talk a little bit about it now. But I guess I guess the one thing right off the top was your thoughts on if you think that will be any more present. I mean, you know, I don't mean from a business perspective. I think most of that article was was focused on uh the business side of things and 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 the potential impact on on that side but do you think it's going to be a lot more present in society once it becomes legal
1: i think it will be more present in society in as much that it will be um more open uh that it is it has always been present that it has been Mm. threaded throughout our society and it has just been forced to be uh, you know, underground or sort of hidden or hushed Yeah. that, you know, most of us who, uh, you know, have any, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I honestly, you know, I grew up in Newfoundland when I was 13 or 14, I think was the first time that, you know, someone handed me a joint at a party. Yeah. I went to school in Montreal. I've lived all over, uh, you know, in Ireland and the UK and Seattle and New York, and no matter where I've gone, I've always, you know, been, you know, somehow cannabis adjacent. If not using it myself, right, right. And I, I just think that you know, if it's more openly uh, a part of our culture, that's a wonderful thing that we should absolutely accept it and and you know, thread it into our lives. It's a it's a, an excellent plant that has you know many applications and uh, you know, embracing it is something that I wholeheartedly espouse. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you? Um you know, clearly a, a supporter and someone who would be in favor of like legalization. Do you ever encounter yourself debating this with someone who, for whatever reason, is against it?
1: Uh, you know, honestly, fairly rarely in, in my world. I mean, I live in Southern California and I work in the cannabis industry, so I'm not surrounded by people who are telling me uh, they enough. don't believe in it. Yeah. <clears throat> but for sure, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here in the U.S. We have currently an administration who's appointed an attorney general who is advocating for the death penalty for drug sentences. So, you know, it's a bit of a dark time here. Yeah. And, you know, and we are looking to Canada to, uh, you know, sort of light the way, honestly, for yeah. us, or at the very least, you know, I mean, you know, bottom line is dollars make sense to people. Yeah. And so if Canada is actually able to implement it in a way... That, you know is a massive boost to the economy as it will be. And um, you know American investors and companies and hopefully then politicians will start looking to Canada to sort of see you know exactly how ridiculous it is to criminalize a plant that. Uh, you know has so many positive applications and you know medically and recreationally and economically. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense to criminalize it in any way. And really what we need to do here is federally deschedule it completely and make it available for regulation, you know, really yeah. regulation and taxation and all of the things that Canada is doing. And, you know, to take it off the black market, uh, you know, we'll make it safer. Yeah. Do you, is, the, is the U.S. watching? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem to me like anyone is currently in Washington is doing anything other than like you know spinning their wheels and navel gazing and you know just making terrible choices in in my opinion but managing uh, twitter accounts Oh god it's just you know <laughs> it's it's a lot it really is i mean my mom lives in newfoundland and she calls me every once in a while to sort of like you know complain about and i'm like mom i'm here like please, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm we're in it down here we're we're in the thick of it but i do certainly hope that you know i think there are massively uh successful canadian companies you know some of the huge 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 investment groups like chronos um are you know just gonna be honestly you know leading the way just financially the and economically they're gonna be able to say to you know all these american investors and then politicians will always follow the money like it just yeah. makes sense crazy so yeah. um I, I read this stat in the article and and
0: to be honest, I, I wanted to talk about this because it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Um, uh-huh. so it was a, the the uh, it was about the report the stats Canada was reporting that Canadians spend almost as much on marijuana as they do on wine. and to get specific about it, um, wine spending in 2015 was seven billion dollars um and the guess is that the spending on marijuana in the same year was 6.2 billion dollars now yeah. stats Canada actually admitted at least this is what what I had read in your in your story that that you know they're guessing a little bit and it could be as little as half that or as much as double that but that's sort of like beyond the point I I, I think uh as it was to me, is that stat surprising to you?
1: No, not at all. Um, Why not? Not at all. I mean, people love to smoke weed, you know, it's uh, like no matter where you go, I think that, you know, any cannabis statistics are going to be way underreported, obviously, because it's illegal. But, you know, California just became the world's largest marijuana marketplace and they're anticipating, you know, billion dollar returns. It's, you know, people are, you know, fascinated by. The whole, you know, idea of being able to sort of like openly consume and, you know, it, like infuse foods and use marijuana and topicals and, you know, they have cannabis-infused wines coming out now. I just was uh, handed a, a thing of medicated eye drops. There's medicated toothpicks. I just went to a dinner party in Malibu, that was an incredible vegan feast paired with cannabis. Everyone is so excited about it. So I'm I'm not surprised that you know especially in California the like the legal marijuana marketplace is going to be enormous but yeah i anticipate that canada will outspend uh you know on wine they'll they'll spend more money on on marijuana yeah uh, fairly quickly i'm guessing yeah i think so do you think that that uh
0: the government is underestimating the demand probably yeah
1: yeah um, in Nevada here, uh, the, uh, demand outpaced the supply very, very quickly when Nevada went legal. So oh, really? I I'm guessing, yes, probably. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are so many of these large grows that are happening in Canada. So maybe they'll be able to, to keep, you know, to keep up with the demand, but, um, I'm guessing that they will be surprised by, by the desire for legal cannabis, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, personally, I, I think that's, what's going to happen. And, and you know, I haven't heard much about it lately, but a few months back, there was a lot of talk about a lot of the LPs were were uh, licensed producers were um, mm-hmm. expanding and, and trying to make sure they had enough when when it went legal. And, and, you know, you now hear stories about different provinces signing contracts with multiple providers for that same reason. Um, and it's funny to me, only from the perspective of we talk about various stats, again, depending on what you read on on the usage, yet... Here it is, we're saying that there isn't a single producer who can keep up with demand when things go legal. So I guess that remains to be seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're in uh, Nova Scotia. Do you have a sense of what's going to happen, like, uh, you know, across the Atlantic provinces, like how it's going to roll out? Well, um I know that each province is, is
0: handling it differently um, and, and each province has a contract or de- are developing contracts with different providers. Uh, from mm-hmm. what I understand right now, I think that Nova Scotia has, um, I don't quote me on this, but I think they're talking about multiple providers. I uh, know New Brunswick has multiple um, mm-hmm. and some of those are local and some of those aren't local. Uh, you know, Canopy Growth, uh, I'm sure you're aware of is one of the largest ones in the country and multiple provinces have deals with, with that provider. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, as you were saying earlier, they're all trying to figure it out. And I don't know if anyone really knows yet to be honest, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, it should be a fascinating time. I'd love to be up there in July.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if it's July, I mean, I think that's the other thing, it, you know, there was talk of it being July 1st initially. And now mm-hmm. they're saying, I think that the, the, the timeline is now summer. So whatever oh. summer means um oh. but uh yeah, it's been moving it's it's getting uh, I'm almost sensing a, a a a sense of panic as things get closer, you know, and part of that has to do with everything from the laws that need to be put in place the the ability for police to be trained and how to how to how to police the whole thing uh, mm-hmm. you know so there's a lot there's a lot going on um. And, you know, I, I mean, look, I'm I'm sitting back watching and just just fascinated by it in, in the sense of how much needs to be done um, and the undertaking that this 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 is. And uh, I mean, that's part of what started the show is what the, the various angles that we can that we can come at this from, and, you know, everything from laws and workplace safety to, uh, insurance companies and providing benefits to employees to, you know, again, how it gets distributed and the infrastructure that's in place by province to, to manage, yeah. manage the retail environments. I mean, there's just so much that needs to be considered, which brings me to the most recent announcement, which I don't know if you've heard, but is the packaging. Have you heard anything about this?
1: Uh, you know, I wrote about it a little bit in the article. Uh, are you talking about the packaging being sort of like very low key and, yes. you know, brands not being able to advertise yes. based on like splashy pictures and bright colors and yeah. so on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's I wanted to talk to you about that because you had an interesting um an interesting angle on that in the article, and it was and it was this thought that because of the plain packaging, and, and again, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, it literally the laws are it's got to be plain, one color packaging, no branding other than the, the company name. There's a THC logo that is prominent and and helps people understand that there is THC, which of course. Gets me to the issue of what about the CBD? No one's really talked about that uh, in the product. And then, you know, massive warning labels in the same way that, that there are on tobacco products in Canada. And right. So there was a there was a statement in your story that someone had said, I can't remember who it was, but that they were taking the fun out of marijuana. And it was described, um, how, what did he say? It's being packaged to make it safe and doing a better job of protecting protecting our kids. But the question was, could it have the reverse effect?
1: Right. So the, the person that I quoted who said that it was about keeping the kids safe was the ex chief of Toronto police. Right. Who's now like the point person for the cannabis yeah. uh, <clears throat> thing, which is, you know, just so bizarre to me that like all these law enforcement officers are now uh, working with uh, cannabis companies. Um And, you know, (laughs) poised to make money off legal cannabis was just sort of, you know, the hypocrisy is a little much for me. But, uh, you know, that's one point is that, you know, it's to keep kids safe, you know, here in the U.S., Uh, in Colorado, Washington, California, the childproof packaging is required. Right. So they've also made it a requirement that, uh, certain candies just not be manufactured. I think, uh, you know, in Colorado, they've banned certain kinds of gummies and, you know, anything that might look like candy that a kid would want to get into. So they've taken steps that don't involve just making it the plainest packaging possible. They've made it childproof and they, you know, have made the product itself less attractive for, uh, younger. Kids, um, you know, the in the branding world in cannabis, it's very important as the sort of emerging industry to be able to stand out. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to some folks who work with cannabis companies who have said, you know, For them, it would be, you know, supremely unfair if they weren't able to stand out with great design or, you know, uh, maybe a celebrity spokesperson endorsing their product that, you know, really hurt them. And I spoke to one uh, guy who's a, you know, sort of Titan in the branding industry, and he said, you know, not being able to brand is just a mistake because then it's sort of a race for the bottom because then everyone is just trying to undercut prices. Right. And so it's not, you know, that's how, I mean, without the branding and without the endorsements and without the advertising, the only other thing that you can do to make it attractive to people is to charge less than anyone else. Yeah, And that is, you know, the, the, I mean, he used the term race to the bottom and I thought that was so interesting. It's just like who can get the cheapest cannabis on the market and that's not good for anyone either.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's part of the balance though. I mean, you, you, you just said that how, how can you make it attractive to anyone? And I think that's part of what the struggle is, particularly from a government perspective, who says, "Yeah, okay, we're going to legalize this thing. There are risks associated with it, so we want to be careful. We don't make it attractive to everyone, particularly
1: kids." Well, you know? Sure. It's but it's you know, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous to think that you know, I mean, the you know, liquor commission stores all over the country are able to. You know, have displays at the very least like saying you know well this this is you know here's a nice picture of a meadow and a couple enjoying a glass of wine in this yeah. meadow and you know it's not like they're going out and handing it to kids on the street but they're able to you know create some sort of branding uh for their product that will mm. you know <clears throat> allow people to sort of differentiate it from other things i mean it's just you know the idea that it needs to be sort of kept in this weird world of like, it's still terrible for you and it's still dangerous (laughs) and we only legalized it because we had to like, no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, hopefully that will evolve. I think everything will be fine tuned over a a period of years and then it'll take a little time to figure it out.
0: Yeah. And that's what I wonder, to be honest, I wonder how much of this is, we don't know everything we need to know. So let's be, let's err on the side of caution. You know, and let's make sure that we, because I think from a business standpoint, the argument for branding, I mean, it's easy to get that. It's easy to go. Yeah, I know why that's important to people, especially Mm -hmm. those who, by the way, have already likely put a lot of money into packaging in
1: order just to be ready. Well, and also just, you know, honestly, like trusted and recognized brands and companies who have Mm -hmm. existed for a while. I mean, you should be able to, as a consumer, choose that company that has been in the, you know, manufacturing business for some time. And you know that that product is going to be lab tested and it's going to be up to a certain standard and all the sort of things, as opposed to someone who just came along and decided to get into the, you know, same business and they have the same advantage. It just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And
0: here it's funny. I agree with that. And, and, you know, what we see happening is that the infrastructure, so as you may or may not know, each province has has been mandated their own, they have to figure out their own way of distribution. And so what you see is some provinces are using a a private sector model. Some provinces are using a more government regulated model. But what the, the case seems to be, the model they're using is the one that already has the infrastructure for managing a restricted product in place. And the issue being, you know, I don't know if anyone can rebuild a new infrastructure structure and time for when we think this is going to be legal. But one, one of the things that I'm kind of worried about just personally, it seems like the more, the more information we learn about decisions, whether that be provincially or federally that come out, I, I almost wonder if, 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 if part of the mandate is to, is to reduce the black market organized crime, create tax revenue and keep things safe. Excuse me. Sometimes I wonder if, if, the announcements that come out may in fact have the reverse effect. So for example, you know, uh, uh, limited packaging, um, the store, the number of stores that were announced in various provinces may seem, um, like there aren't enough. Um, you talk about the laws that are now going to be in place the, the little guys that maybe can't do what they thought they were going to do all of these things. And I start to wonder if, if in many ways, the intent is getting lost in the caution and and that, that the black market may in fact still thrive uh, for those that just, it's easier to call my guy and have him show up.
1: It's an interesting point. I, I did speak to someone for the uh, article I wrote on Canada uh, who works as a delivery uh, person in uh, Montreal. Oh yeah. And he had no fear that his business would be affected whatsoever. Right. Because he supplies top shelf flour and concentrates uh, and edibles, I believe, to folks who can just, you know, send him a text and he comes to their home or wherever they want to meet up that's safe and private. And they have a, you know, very quick business transaction and he gives them what they like. And, you know, the whole thing is completely black market, but it's it's, Mm. you know, they they rely on him for good product. And, and he's, uh, you know, he feels certain that that's, that desire, that demand isn't going to go away at all. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he feels that a lot of those, uh, Customers of his are also people who have a healthy um, dislike for uh, authority and establishment and legalization initiatives through folks like the ex-chief of police from Toronto, who is now saying, you know, that cannabis is good after having locked people up for years. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. it's 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 an interesting uh, point to be made. Um, it seems like people are going to smoke cannabis no matter what. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been proven that the, no, nobody's going to be able to shut it down. So regulating the industry uh, while taking into account that, you know, it, the, the black market will still be there unless they really make it um a model where people are going to want to buy it legally it's, yeah you know, to make it easy somehow yeah
0: yeah and and that brings me to the to the private retailers and and you know again referring back to your story that you just written uh you would refer to a guy in newfoundland who was who was preparing to open his own shop now correct me if i'm wrong but newfoundland i think has a private sector distribution model is that right
1: I believe so, yes. That's what that's what I was told.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I wonder about, it, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but, you know, so we know that in provinces where the government is regulating and distributing the product, there's these limitations on packaging, you know, how you can interact with the stores and all of that. But then you get people uh, like these private sector folks in Newfoundland, as an example, who are going to open up their store and mm-hmm. the guy that – I should have his name in front of me. I don't have it. but um, And he talked about uh, working on his branding, and he's getting ready to brand his product. And so when yes. I read that, the first thing I thought was, well, that's – I mean, how does that work? I mean, is is he allowed to brand his product, but the, the folks that are distributing through the government are not? <laughs>
1: I am not sure exactly what his sort of game plan is, but yeah, he did have a plan to brand his uh, his product sort of with like local names, you know, from yeah. Newfoundland culture. He, um, but I don't know if that's going to be through packaging or if maybe that'll just be, you know, how he advertises his shop, right. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, fair enough. He could, he, yes, there are other ways, of course, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing I wonder about is, you know, currently... Before laws are enforced, which is the, the phrase I'll use, it's really not that hard to find shops, dispensaries, online stores that will sell just about anything, you know, edibles, concentrates, all of that stuff. What do you think is going to happen to those places when, when the enforcement of the laws begins to kick in?
1: Uh, It's not my experience that you can buy anything online here in the U.S., so I don't really know. I mean, you know, it's true. Like, there, I've never, you know, and I've I've been in the states now for uh, I think 18 years. I've never bought anything online, so I don't know. I mean, I'd imagine that those places would probably be shut down fairly quickly.
0: So that's news Um, to you
1: that you can do that. Absolutely, yeah. I've certainly looked. I'd love to buy (laughs) stuff online.
0: (laughs) Well, it's time you got to move back to Canada now. That's it.
1: Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. But, you know, you brought up CBD earlier and that's, you know, uh, maybe a direction that those companies might want to move into is CBD, uh, you know, selling CBD products online. I mean, uh, there are several cannabis companies here that because they're waiting for their permits to manufacture THC uh, products, there are in the meantime just manufacturing CBD products and and doing very well with that you know there's a huge interest here in cbd i'm sure ex- exists in canada as well um as you know it's got all of these wonderful properties for you know calming effects and uh you know uh, like analgesic topical properties and people are giving it to their pets and all sorts of yeah. stuff so maybe they can move into the cbd world i don't, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: well the reason i brought up the cbd thing was because of course the focus is on the psychoactive ingredient which is the thc and and but, I mean, from what I understand about what, what the intentions of the LPs are, is to distribute product that's got a combination of both. So, I mean, currently you can have a, a full-on THC strain, you know, a full-on CBD strain, which, as you said, most people would be using medicinally. And you can have mm-hmm. hybrids, one-to-ones, that are sort of a, a THC-CBD mixture. and mm-hmm. And I don't know... And in fact, I only thought of it just just now while we were chatting, if, if the CBD portion of this equation has been considered. So what about a strain, and I don't know, this isn't a question more so than just a thought, you know, what about a strain that an LP wants to put in a store that's all CBD yet is mandated to have a THC logo on it? I mean, I don't know how they manage that. <clears throat>
1: Well, if it's smokable flour that's high in CBD, it still will have some amount of THC in it. There is no right, strain right. of cannabis that exists apart from hemp. But if it's cannabis flour that is meant for smoking, uh, it will have some amount of THC uh, yeah, in it, which point. activates the CBD, right? But if it's if it's hemp-based CBD, you know they're extracting hemp full-spectrum uh, CBD oil from hemp plants that yeah. actually doesn't have. It has like less than point zero three percent of THC in it. That that is not a THC product. That's Pure
0: CBD. Yeah, right. And nobody's gonna smoke rope, so maybe we're no, okay.
1: <laughs> no, nobody's smoking <laughs> hemp around here. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, maybe people have tried. I don't know. Um, For
1: sure.
0: I mean, I, I got a feeling it's gonna take take some time to get it right. You know, you alluded to that earlier about the time it's taking, even in California and the adjustments mm-hmm. that have been made. How long do you think before you know we figure out the right distribution model? And I'm asking this from the perspective of you know your awareness of the cannabis world and all of the ups and downs of that. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how long you think it might take for, um, the country to get it right.
1: I, I think it'll take a while. I really do. I yeah. think it'll take, you know, a couple of years at the very least to start sort of figuring out what works. Um, you know, I know in Colorado and Washington, it really took at least two years before they could get the, um, you know, alcohol and cannabis industries to agree on how to regulate. And both of those states chose different uh, attacks. And, you know, I know that Oregon as well uh, has had some interesting time sort of dialing it in. And, you know, it's just taken some time. So I really, my guess is that it'll be a couple of years before things really are, you know, working in a way that suits all different aspects of the industry and consumers. Yeah. And, and have you had the...
0: Um it sounds like you might have had the privilege of of experiencing those laws in different states. And and if so, if that's a safe assumption to make, are, is it different? Like, do you actually feel the difference by state?
1: You do. You do. It's interesting. So I uh, have gone to cannabis cups when I was working with High Times. I worked cannabis cups in, uh, I think, all of the states where it was legal and also some of the states where it wasn't legal for recreational consumption, but it was legal for uh, medical consumption. Mm-hmm and it really varies state by state it's it's really interesting i think colorado is probably the most uh, successful, at least, you know, I know just by dollar amount, the, the tax revenue that they're seeing on the uh, cannabis industry is just enormous. I mean, there's so much money that they they, yeah. they have more, they have surplus, and they're, you know, thrilled about that, of course. Um, Washington is also very, very successful. And, you know, the cannabis shops in Washington are wonderful. They're, you know, like open and it's available to everyone. And yeah yeah it's great so it's very different state by state i haven't been to alaska yet i'm heading up there in a couple of weeks to write a feature i'm excited to check alaska out um i've spent some time in michigan where it's um, medically available and hopefully going to be coming on uh, recreational soon but yeah it, it really does vary state by state and in california it's it's fascinating right now uh to watch it sort of unfold and to see people um experience it as, as legal, you know, the, the sort of delight when someone can actually openly, uh, purchase and and take home for private consumption, legal cannabis. It's, it's a pretty exciting moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so weird because, uh, even personally, I get conflicted about being excited by it and then cautious at the same time, you know, like, so, Mm -hmm. so, you know, if I, if I'm talking to a parent who is who's very concerned about the kind of world their kids are about to grow up in, you know, there's a different tone in that conversation than say, you know, a user who's going, "I can't believe this is about to be legal." But I've also spoken to people, you know, who are uh, users, recreational users, who actually don't like the idea of legalization purely from the f- perspective of now. There's going to be all these rules and regulations in place that currently don't
1: exist. So oh, for sure, you know. I mean, when I went to my first retail shop to buy legal cannabis in January when it when it became available here, uh, the tax here is twenty seven percent. So an eighth. yeah, an eighth, which I'd been paying thirty five dollars for was fifty three dollars. I mean, yeah, it, it was a bit of a shock,
0: wow. but you know,
1: that money, that tax revenue is going to go to roads and schools and infrastructure and first responders and, you know, hopefully research and all of these things that are highly necessary. And I don't know, I suppose I would just say to any parents who are concerned about cannabis being legal, um, here in the U S there's an opioid crisis happening, yeah, uh, right. you know, pharmaceutical drug abuse is really the problem amongst teens alcohol abuse is the you know trouble methamphetamine abuse all of these things cannabis i don't think uh really constitutes a threat um and if they are concerned about it then it's a wonderful time to have a conversation with their kids about it just like they would about alcohol or any other thing that will be available and legal um you know it's a great opportunity to just be really open and have the conversation and, and explain you know to those kids that you know when they are of age they can experience it and until then that they should stay away from it because it is a you know an adult use product
0: yeah i i, I agree with you 100 percent. from the perspective of i think that the legalization has forced all of these conversations And it has forced a bunch of things to be acknowledged that I think, you know, we just either weren't acknowledging or we were hoping would go away. Um, And now we're sort of being forced to put policies in place and have those conversations. And that, to me, can't be a bad thing.
1: No, I mean, as, as long as we're talking about it openly and, you know, not being shut down. And I really think that I'm very hopeful that the American government follows in the Canadian government's footsteps, too. Yeah interesting you know start having that conversation and figure it out
0: yeah so i understand that you recently started your own podcast i did (laughs) tell me a little bit about that
1: it's a lot of fun Uh, i met this wonderful uh comedian named mike glazer here in la through the cannabis scene he actually contributed to high times and we became friends and he uh, is a rising comedy star, and he also enjoys cannabis, and he loves cooking. And these are three <laughs> things that we—he just graduated from culinary school, actually. Oh wow! And uh, he's yeah, he's done a lot of cool stuff. He's been on BuzzFeed videos, you know, meeting sloths when stoned, and he's uh, you know doing some exciting things here and around LA. And he's also writing for HBO and doing other big things. But anyway, he's he's a lot of fun. We're very good friends. We love cannabis, comedy, and cooking. And so we decided to start a podcast where we just got to talk about all of those things. So basically, <laughs> it's called weed and Grub, and we um we spark up and then we just talk about food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> weed and grub. yeah, it's I guess it's self-explanatory,
1: yeah. I mean, we just have a great time together, and you know mm. it's a lot of um you know, fun food musings kind of, you know, fueled by our favorite plant, I guess would yeah. be our tagline.
0: Oh, yeah. that's fun. I uh, I attempted to listen to it this afternoon while I was at the office and I realized I needed to listen to it somewhere else.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, we swear. No, yeah, yeah. it's not well, it's not office friendly.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah, it was less the swearing more just the uh, the entertainment value, I think, but uh, I'll be sure to <laughs> be sure to give it a, a thorough listen.
1: Awesome. Thank you. We just dropped our second episode today. So it comes out every Wednesday for Weed Wednesday and uh, we're on iTunes Weed and Grub. Nice. And how do you qualify to be a guest on that show? Uh, you, you've you already qualified and we would love to have you. And basically you just have to smoke and eat with us and then talk about uh, fun stuff.
0: That's funny. We'll chat off. Blast.
1: Then. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a couple of other questions for you. Um, uh, and maybe you don't have an answer to this, but certainly peering from the window that you're looking through, do you think Canada's ready?
1: I do. I do. I, you know, uh, have enjoyed consuming cannabis in British Columbia and Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And uh, I look forward to, to enjoying it in Alberta and Manitoba and other places too. But, um, you know, I think Canadians, uh, are ready for legal cannabis and to reap the benefits of what that means and to move away from the stigmatization of it and to have people stop going to you know prison for you know drug sentences and you know treat it as a as a a health issue as opposed to a a criminal issue you know is really something that i think is going to you know bring a wonderful new era to canadian culture Mm -hmm. through cannabis
0: so uh, we'll wrap up with this. What I mentioned earlier, the, there there are a lot of um, sides to this equation in terms of people's thoughts and feelings on what's happening in, in the country. And um, it's a fairly general question, but what what advice would you give to people, you know, as we prepare to legalize this product? Hmm.
1: What advice <laughs> would I give to people? <laughs> Sorry. Um, a- I would say have an open mind, mm-hmm. ask a lot of questions, hmm. do some reading. You know, there's wonderful writing out there by, uh, medical professionals like Dr. Raphael Meshulam, who, um, isolated the THC in cannabis. He's right. a, he's a researcher in Israel. You know, there's, there's a ton of reading to be done. Talk to a cannabis consumer. hmm Talk to someone you know who enjoys uh, using cannabis. Ask them why, if you don't understand. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're not a consumer yourself, uh, look into becoming an ally and an advocate for those of us who do enjoy it. Right. And, you know, yeah, just keep an open mind and remember that it's a, a plant that expands consciousness and and is really about, you know, experiencing freedom. And, um, you know, if, if you're afraid of it, then maybe, yeah, just look around and ask ask a lot of questions.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I've often said as I talk to more people and learn more that – there are definitely a lot of perspectives, um, you know, from your perspective, you certainly seem to make a compelling case for the positive sides of, of, of cannabis and it's the role that it can play in your life. There are those that have, uh, you know, very opposing opinions, but I, will, I, I completely agree with you that if I can say anything about anything we've learned uh, since having this conversation with folks is that you have to learn more. You have to educate yourself and know more before you can make your own decisions.
1: Absolutely. And it takes, you know, courage and, um, uh, you know, intellect to be open minded and ask those questions and nothing bad can come of that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Mary Jane, which still amuses me. (laughs) Thanks so much for, uh, for being a guest. It's been, uh, it's been kind of cool to talk to someone who's had the inside tracked on such a culturally impactful magazine. Um, and of course, wish you luck on your own podcast, which we can talk about later and, uh, and, uh, and all the best. Thanks you. Thanks for, uh, it's thanks been for a r- along.
1: thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And I look forward to following along and seeing what happens, uh, this summer. And I, yeah, please keep me posted. Will do. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Well, there you go. We were just talking to someone who used to write for High Times Magazine. And look, I got to admit, I, I've never really read the magazine, but for whatever reason, it's certainly one that I've I've been aware of probably for most of my life, um, it did always seem to me like a very underground kind of culture. And when you listen to Mary talk about what it's like to work there and you hear the stories of people risking the, their lives or the, or the custody of their children to get a story, it's surprising to me the commitment those people would have to something that they really believed in. And it, I got to imagine that those people would be sitting back going at this point and, and being just amazed at the idea that it's becoming legal certainly in the U.S. by state and then, of course, uh, across the country, which I thought was really neat from her perspective, this idea that that uh, they're sort of watching to see how it gets handled. I mean, we've spoken to people from the U.S. before who have said that, you know, they're not paying attention. Maybe California is different, and I'm sure that's by, by industry or <clears throat> maybe even by person. But to hear that they're watching to see how Canada handles it and, and looking to maybe take a lead from us as a country is a reminder to me of the history that's being made. It's been a while since I've thought of it that way, but again, here we are about to make some, some major changes to the way we live and and breathe in our society and history is about to be made. You know, I I think she thought it was going to take two to three years before we, we get things right. Who knows? Maybe longer. Um, but I do agree with the idea that it's going to take some time. I, I still think, you know, we have to make decisions now that set up the best odds for success, however we choose to define that. And, and I think that we're probably setting ourselves up uh, fairly well, I think, for that. And, and who knows what the laws will look like in a couple of years and, and how society will, will, um, will be managing this, this, new, this new idea. She did mention the idea that teen use has dropped in Colorado, and, you know, I I I wonder about that. I, I don't know. It, it, again, it, the thing that I'm finding is that it, it depends on who you talk to or where you choose to get your information. The stats seem to differ. Um, you know, she had mentioned not being sure if there's enough clinical data, and I think that's probably the one thing I know to be true, that in the way that clinical data or scientific evidence is defined, enough of that doesn't yet exist to clearly and and confidently, you know, throw out these stats and know that they're true. Uh, you know, if you talk to one person uh, who thinks that teen use has, has, has uh, grown, I'm sure that they can find some facts to support that. And the same is true for the opposite. So, I'm still scratching my head a little bit as it relates to that one, to be honest. Um, I did appreciate uh, her chatting about uh, the way things go in various states, the different laws and the impact of that. Learned a little bit about the cannabis cup, which, to be honest, is, uh, is kind of fascinating. But I guess like any industry that creates products and has rewards for those people who seem to do it better than others, on some level, it makes a lot of sense. Who knows? Maybe one day the Cannabis Cup will be a part of our society and all of us will be going to a three-day festival to judge which one is the best. We'll see. You're listening to Turning a New Leaf, produced by the Village Soundcast Network, and I'm your host, Sean King. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.